Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Doug Nelms and I serve as one of our pastors here. And I am really grateful that you're here right now. Honestly, you could, seriously, applaud yourselves. You could be at home sleeping off a food coma, but you're here and now. And thank you, Jesus, for that, right? I mean, again, let's be honest. Some of us are like, I just really wish I was still there. That's, that's you know, I, I understand. I understand. Look, we had a, a level of French toast and food that took me days to work off. I immediately had to go to the gym. It was, it was wrong. It was sinful. But oh, so right. But it is good to be with you. Uh, particularly, I want to welcome you. This is your first time here. Uh, we're Honestly, like, thank you for being here. This is, we do a lot here specifically for you. Um, we want this place, this community, this family, to be a family of people where you can feel and experience the love of Jesus before you ever believe what we believe about him. Yeah. Like, that, uh, we, that's a long way of saying we want you to be able to belong here before you believe the claims of Jesus. That's who we are, and so we hope you experience that because we actually think, I know this is subtle, but we actually think that if you experience the love of Jesus through his people, it's more enticing for you to want to be part of them, right? So thank you for being here. We're so happy that you're here. I'd love to meet you after this. With that, if you've got your Bibles or your phone, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. Uh, We've got a little sermon note set up for you, and while you're scanning that, I want to give you the reason we do what we do for these particular sermon notes, just as a quick aside. This 70, 90 minutes, whatever it ends up being, is incredibly needed and powerful and renewing for our lives. But it is a small fraction of our lives, right? Like if this is the only piece of like spiritual practice you're getting, you're probably a little bit anemic, let's be honest. And so we want to continue to provide resources for you to continue to practice your faith, to work at being a good Christian throughout the rest of the week. And so that's why we do these every single week. They are for you. We want you to be good at being a Christian. So please use those. Please leverage those. It's a lot of fun to make those and to get them to you. So... With that, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. And the reason we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and I love the book of Ephesians, because it is, if not one of the, perhaps the best book of the Bible to describe God's vision and purposes for his church, okay? It is significant in that regard. It's almost unmatched in that regard that you get a sense of what God believes about his church and what he wants them to do, like you get in no other book of the Bible. It's one of the reasons I think that it was passed around so much in the Near East ancient world is because it speaks so much to what it means to be a community of Jesus. So if you would go ahead and get there. We're going to read a lot of verses today, but I'm only open up reading just a few, you know, because I like leaving you wanting more. So uh, verse eight is where we're going to start. It says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes light. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray together real quick, family. Holy Spirit, I am grateful for you. I am grateful for all that you've given us. I ask right now that you continue to minister to your children. Can you minister to the people of God as we unpack some beautiful truths that you have for us in the scriptures, some beautiful truths and ways of being in this world that we hope will be life-giving and continue to propel us towards the greater glory that you have for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and all the people of God said, amen. amen. So today, I want to be really, really practical, like just ridiculously practical. In fact, I'm going to give you steps today. That's what's going to happen. But there's a question that I've been wrestling with. Um, that every generation of Christians has to wrestle with, and it's simply put, and you can put it a hundred different ways, but something like this. How do we, as the children of God, live faithfully in a culture that doesn't want us to, right? How do we have a flourishing faith in this world? Like, God has no intention of pulling you out of it. I hope you know that. You don't get saved and then leave. He thinks you're the best option for being here, for seeing the world come back to him. And so he said, no, I'm going to leave you. So how do we have a flourishing faith in the world that we live in? Okay? Now, and I want to be really specific as we walk through this, because every generation of Christian has a particular culture that they're working against or is working against them. And I want to go out of our way to describe ours. And I... And I was using, I looked up data, and I had resources. I'm going to read you charts and this and that. But as I was studying, I came across a description of our world that is so on point, I don't even need data to back it up. Are you ready? Okay. You say that. A culture which seeks only passive comfort and routine, avoiding everything that could potentially bring risk, pain, or disappointment. An apathetic society who loses the ability to dream, to strive, and who become unwilling to take risks, instead, simply earning their living and keeping warm. You feel this, don't you? You feel this everywhere we go. It seems like society has just stopped caring, that we're just trying to exist and keep warm, right? This quote is an author's summarization of an old, old dead German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, he is best known for coining the phrase, God is dead and we killed him. Okay? He lived in the mid to, eight, mid to late 1800s, and he wrote about what we would call nihilism. The sense that nothing matters, good or bad, you're just here. And he thought that this would be the one of two possible scenarios for modern society as it was headed. Remember, he wrote this in the 1800s. That we would end up being what he would call passive nihilists. Maybe good things happen to me. Maybe they don't. Maybe the world gets better. Maybe it doesn't. It's not like I think, it, again, nihilism isn't where I think the world's going to go bad. You just don't care. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. It'll just keep on going, I'll keep on going. As long as I got a warm meal, I'm totally fine. And it's this description that we experientially feel almost every day. I got a minute because this is 11.45, so I want to tell you a quick story I received this morning about this. 
friend of mine's in a, heading onto a flight somewhere, and he, he texted me and said, my flight's been delayed for I don't know how long. I'm like, why is that? He said, because some dude thought he could vape in the bathroom <laughs> of the plane, to be specific. We're falling apart, man. <laughs> We're just falling apart. But here's the thing. Before we go about pointing fingers, I, I want us to do some self-reflection. Let me ask this question. Is this not eerily similar to how we treat our relationship with Jesus? I know y'all thought it was going to be nice when you got in here. I'm sorry, and it's not. Is it not? In fact, let's do a little exercise. I want you to, we're going to read this again. I want to replace the word culture with faith and society with church. Let's read it again. A faith which seeks only passive comfort and routine, avoiding everything that could potentially bring risk, pain, or disappointment. A church, an apathetic church, who loses the ability to dream, to strive, and who become unwilling to take risk, instead simply earning their living and keeping warm. Yeah. We have adopted our host culture's passive nihilism, have we not? Yeah. It has infiltrated how we live our faith, and it is keeping us from flourishing in this world. Let's be honest. We don't realize our host culture's impact on our faith. And the nihilism is just one example and a significant one. We don't even understand how this is happening. We just exist in it every single day, and it seems to work itself into our faith. And while we would all agree that we are supposed to be the church of the resurrection, the people, a community of a risen Jesus, of a spirit of God that is active and working in this world, we seem to live counter to that. And look, I'm not pointing fingers here. This is me too. Like, I feel this pull every single day of my life. Here's how it shows up for me. Why do I have to care when no one else does? Like, caring requires emotional energy, and I've got nothing left, man. I'm tired. Why do I have to get up in the mornings and try? No one else is trying. It's the pull I feel every single day. And look, this is... Having a cultural narrative that we have to work against is nothing new for the people of God, okay? This just happens to be ours that we have to work against. And there's good news in that regard, though, because the Bible knew that this would be the, an issue for us. And so it actually lays out a plan for how to flourish in your faith while in this world. In fact, the text we're going to read today I promise you, says God has a plan for his children to resist the pull of this world and flourish in their faith. There is a plan that we're going to look at in this text that you can find throughout the Bible. This is not a unique space. You can see it everywhere we go, and maybe it doesn't use the language that we're going to use today, but it is a plan, a purpose of God for us to flourish in our faith in this world. And so, as we said at the top, today's going to be super, super practical. We're going to just get into some steps and work through them. But we begin our journey in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 with this interesting kind of conflict that Paul brings up in verse 8. And if you're new to the faith, it might even be a little bit confusing. What is Paul saying when he's talking about light and dark? 
What does this even mean? And when most people describe that kind of conflict, they, they tend to oversimplify by saying, oh, it's, you know, the good things you do versus the bad things you do. Now, that's definitely in view here, but it is so much more than that. Light and dark are not behavior modifications. They are spheres of existence. They are kingdoms in this world. They are separate allegiances. They are identities. They define who we are. Look at what Paul says. Look at how he even describes it. For once you were darkness, not of it, not it. You were darkness. It's a sense of identity, but now you are light. You were something before. Jesus came and made you something different. Not changed behaviors. You became a different being in substance. Like you see this, and even in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Not you represent the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's who you are now. That is your allegiance. And so we see this in the scriptures often. Like a lot of people who are new to the Bible think that the Bible is about behavior modification. It's really not. It is more concerned with who you think you are. Now, let me be very clear. It's concerned with what you do, okay? Let's be very clear. You can't just go and do whatever you want to do, right? That's not what that is. But it is primarily concerned with helping you understand who you are and then what you do after the fact. Like you see this even in the next verse that Paul has. He says, live then as children of light. So you are light, now live out of who you are. It's this constant refrain of identity and action. Identity first, who you're supposed to be, who you are. Followed by, now, what does it look like to be that person? Who you are, what you do, what you're meant to do in this world. And I actually think we can summarize this in a simple uh, word that we're all used to. The idea of purpose. It's purpose. Fundamentally, purpose is knowing who you are and what you're meant to do. Who you God has made you. And now, how should you act in this world? What does he have to do for you? Which is step number one in God's plan for flourishing in this world. We must discover our purpose. We must discover who we are and what we're meant to do. Now, think about how that would combat the prevailing narrative of our day. Like nothing matters, apathy, nihilism, that thing. Like, is it possible to have a divine purpose in your life and still be a passive nihilist? I mean, yeah, but it's just hard. <laughs> you have to wake up every day and fight that, right? It's like, I'm going to choose to be a nihilist even though I know God gave me a purpose. Like, it's just really difficult because purpose combats apathy. Combats it. Purpose combats the draw of comfort. Purpose combats the sense of safety we have in our lives. It causes us to risk much. Purpose 
will actually define where and with whom we should be spending our time. Purpose combats this sense of cultural, like this impending upon us that you don't matter and nothing you do matters. It tells you that you do. Who you are and what you are meant to do combats the prevailing narrative of the day. Now, here's, this is how seriously we take this. Um, we've actually developed an environment that that's the reason it exists, is to help you discover your purpose. It's called Growth Track, right? That, see, I, I, didn't, I, want, I need more than that for Growth Track. I just do. Thank you very much. Growth Track, thank you, Lord. Uh, no, seriously, uh, Growth Track is designed. It's, it exists to help you discover your purpose in this life, who you are and what you're meant to do. That's why it's there. So look, if you're wrestling with this, you're unsure about those things, please, 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 please sign up for Growth Track. You can speak to one of our welcome team members. There'll be a QR code at the end. Please, please, please sign up for Growth Track. Discover who you are and what you're meant to do. Discover your purpose in this world, okay? So with that as the foundation, step one, Paul then moves to a lengthy and sometimes oddly specific section about our actions in this world in verse 11 and 13. He says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. So I don't know how well you know this. Paul wasn't a fool. The apostle Paul was a brilliant man. And he foresaw as a good pastor, as a good apostle, that there were going to be situations that Christians faced that he couldn't actually write about. That there was going to be a horizon down the road that I haven't given them exactly what to do here, so I'm going to have to give them a way to figure out what to do because the world feels gray a lot, right? It's, there, there are clear things that we need to do, clear things that we don't need to do. Yes, that's in there. It's painted awesome. But what about that giant middle where it's just kind of like, I don't know. It's unclear exactly. I, I want to do the right thing. I want to be living uh, live light of being a child of light, but I'm not really sure what the answers are. And so he wants to give us a way to figure that out. And his answer is to expose those things, those decisions, desires, complexities to the light. Or more specifically, to the people who are the light. I don't think y'all follow me yet. He wants you to bring your concerns, decisions, desires, whatever it is, to his people. He wants you to bring it to them and let them shine their light on it. Like, I know this is difficult for all of us who grew up in the West. We're like, I don't need nobody. Hey, hey, all I need to do is think about it, maybe pray a bit, get on, get done. No. Like, we'll Christianize it too. Here's what we'll do to Christianize it. All I need to do is get my prayer closet, ask the Lord, he'll tell me what to do, and I'll go do that. Yeah, but he'll also confirm it with the people of God in your life. Like, let me go even a step further. If you're unwilling to bring your decision that you're thinking of making, um, the desire you have before the people of God, you already know what you should do. And it's ain't do it. You already know. What, what did it say just before this? That it is shameful 
what the disobedient do in darkness, in secret. If you're unwilling to live in the light with the thing you want to do, you already know whether you should do it or not. But when you are willing, when you bring your decision, your whatever it may be, to the light, the wisdom, the counsel of God's people, you get the best answer. You do. Like, I mean, again, consider the logic of this, okay? We are now living in a whole different kingdom, right? We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We're in the kingdom of light with other people. And we're supposed to live, act in accordance with that new identity. Does it not make sense that the other people in that kingdom would have some sense as to what right action would be for those who live in that kingdom? So why not bring it to them? This is how we make decisions in the gray living in this world. And it happens to be step two, which is we must live openly with God's people. We must live openly with them, willing to expose our decisions, our life, our purposes to them and have them shine the light of Jesus on it so that we can continue to navigate a complicated world. It's very complicated. But he has not left us alone. He has given us his people. And it's almost like Paul knew the tension that he was creating here because he comes out with a very aggressive statement. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine his light on you. Like when I read this and I was studying, like I couldn't get DMX out of my head yelling, you think this is a game? Right? That's what it feels like to me. It's Paul pleading with the church to take their faith seriously. This ain't a game. He wants them to know where they exist in. Look, 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 listen to me. There is no middle ground in following Jesus. There is no middle ground in following Jesus. You either follow him or you don't. There isn't a passive middle that you can decide what you're going to do in. You either follow Jesus or you're not. And that is hard sometimes. And if we think that we don't have to take it seriously, I, th I honestly believe that we're, we're just deluding ourselves. Following Jesus requires proactivity. Following Jesus requires that we work at it every day. I would say it this way. Following Jesus requires practice. We have to practice at following Jesus. And look, I know nobody told you this when you became a Christian, right? They just said, like, look, just keep your eyes on Jesus. It's a journey with him. And when there'll, be, there'll be hard times for sure, right? For sure. But as long as you keep your eyes on him, everything will be fine. Look, that's not untrue. It's just really limited, right? That's yes, but there's way more to it. We have to practice our faith every single day. And look, here's the thing. Like most things we have to practice, we're really bad at it when we get started. Like, just let me, let me relieve the burden. You're really bad at following Jesus when you get started. You're not, being, you're not good at being a Christian yet. That's not how this works. Like, I, sincerely, I have kids. They're my kids. They will always be my kids. They're not good at being my kids right now. They wild. They don't, they don't listen a lot of days. They tear up everything. They ain't good at it yet. By God's grace, through discipleship and a lifelong trying, they will get good at it. That's what it's like following Jesus. 
He made you something new before you knew how to be it. He says, now I've made you this. You will always be this. Now you're going to have to work at what it looks like to be good at being this. We have to practice following Jesus. And look, I want you to consider this as well. When you stop practicing something, do you get better at it, stay stagnant, or get worse at it? I know the answer, but I want to be really transparent and give you an example from my own life. So one of the most difficult, Jesus, most difficult spiritual practices for me is silence. Oh, God, 30 seconds is an hour and a half. Like, it's just hard, man. Like, blame it on the ADHD, blame it on the Enneagram 7, whatever it is. It's just hard. And so, but in 2018, I could see the significance of what it would do in my spiritual life. And so I was like, all right, 2018, I'm going to get good at this. And so I started at like a minute. I made it to like three. And then like a year later, it was like five, right? It's just, it, I started working at it. And honestly, by like March 2020, I had gotten up to like 20 minutes. And it was like a, it wasn't even like a drudgery. It began to feel beautiful. And I was like, yes, thank you, Lord, for this silence that I have right now because I'm not going to have it any other time of day. It was this wonderful thing. I loved it. And then COVID happened. And everybody came home all the time. All the time. All day, every day. And my kids weren't good at being my kids. And silence wasn't like, it was just off the table. Let's be very clear. It was just off the table. And so I, got, I, just, I just stopped trying for it because I just couldn't get it. And so, you know, all happened, you know, kids went out of school, everything. We worked it out back to normal, some, some extent, whatever this is, normal. Um, I started picking it up again. At three minutes, my brain starts freaking out. My hands don't know what to do with themselves. I lost ground in that aspect of my faith. And so now I've got to start over again. I've got to start practicing it again. I've got to start doing the difficult work of just sitting with no stimulation for as long as possible. Mm. To get back where I was, we must practice our faith. So let me ask you this. Is being part of a small group hard for you? you might be out of practice. Is, is reading your Bible daily hard for you? You, you might be out of practice. Like, look, let me just do this real quick. Let me read you some of the practices that we're supposed to have in our faith, and you just take a self-assessment, okay? I'm going to come out swinging, all right? Just know that. Fasting. Everybody was like, no. <laughs> Forgiveness. That is not natural. That requires effort. Sharing your faith. Praying by yourself. Reading your Bible every day. Like, it's easy now, and it still feels hard. <laughs> Community, i.e. small groups. Corporate prayer. Praying with other people. Corporate worship, being here. Is this hard for you? Is it? Bringing God your first and your best. These things are not natural. 
And the assumption that we're just going to be able to knock it out of the park when we get started is a lie and often leads to an unnecessary level of discouragement. We must work, practice, work at being good at being a Christian. It doesn't come naturally. It takes effort. It takes try, which is the second step in God's plan for us to flourish in this world. We must practice our faith. We must practice our faith. I want to go back one, one slide for those verses real quick because I want to read them to you because Paul talks about this specifically. Look what he says. Be very careful then how you live. Don't go into your life haphazardly. Don't go into your faith haphazardly. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is and do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Look, as a former fool, wisdom was hard. It was. It was not something that just came natural to me. I like to have a good time all the time. But practicing wisdom became part of my life, and over time you grow in it. We must practice our faith. And look, I want to be clear here. Don't try to practice all of them at once. Please, Jesus, don't do that. That is nothing but a recipe for discouragement and disaster. You'll quit hour one. Like, ask God, what is the first practice I need to work on? Expose it to the light, his people. Say, this is what I think the Lord wants me to work on. And then go from there. Try one or two. Do not take all of them on. Please do not do that. It takes a long time to get good at being a Christian. And that's okay. You've got a long time to do it, Lord willing. So pick one, pick two, and start working at being a Christian. So from here, Paul moves to a much lighter tone and encouragement. It's one that I love so much, uh, probably because I play bass and I'm a musician. But he says this, instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to each other in song form. Seriously. Speak to each other in song form. Like, when's the last time you sang over someone? And, like, I don't, I don't mean like what we do in my house. Like, we, in my house, we sing our feelings. I don't really know why, how it happened. It came about. You can literally hear me, myself, my, my daughter, whatever, upstairs singing, I don't like you. <laughs> this is not a joke. It really helps. But that's not what I mean. When's the last time you sang a psalm, a hymn, a spiritual song over someone? I can actually tell you. It was about 20 minutes ago. Yeah. It was about 20 minutes ago. It was what you do in corporate worship. Now, look, let's be clear. Paul is not limiting what he's saying here to corporate worship. It is far greater than that, but let's be clear. It is not less than that. Like, like think about this. When you know what someone's going through, perhaps they got a teenager running amok, got a family member at the hospital, lost a job, name the situation, and you see them lifting up their voice to Jesus, Jesus, you change everything. 
Does that not renew your soul? Does that not change your perspective about life? Like, I, I see it, and I go, man, I, di I didn't want to try today, but God dang, if they can. If they can, I can too. Like, does it not shift our perspective about reality? Does it not bolster our faith? There is something to singing songs to Jesus together that totally reorients our reality. It is something that changes our perspective about the world. It renews what we believe. I mean, again, let's apply this. The cultural narrative says that nothing matters and nothing you do matters. We get together here and sing, our God reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad for he has overcome. How does that not change how you view yourself in this world? When you think nothing matters, Jesus says, I reign and you do. When you think you can't go on, he says, I change everything. It matters that you sing over the truths of Jesus over me and I sing them over you. It matters to us. It renews what we believe about the world. It renews our perspective, which is step four. We must renew our perspective of life. And we do that in a significant way in corporate worship together. Like, and this is the beauty of this step. It regenerates all the rest of them. I walk in here believing something different than what God has said about me. You sing over me. We sing together. I walk out believing his truth. I walk in here not trusting anyone, thinking that no one knows what I'm going through. And I see you passionately singing your heart out to the Lord. And it gives me hope that we're on the same page. And that I can be open with you. I don't want to try anymore. Following Jesus is hard, man. I'm working on this silence thing and I'm getting like 30 seconds before my children tackle me. And I want to give up. But I come in here and you sing over me and I sing over you. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I can do this. I can do this. I can keep working at this. We must renew our perspective. We must begin to shift our reality on a constant basis of what is actually happening in this world and who we are. And in case you think I made this up, I'm going to read you from something from Bishop N.T. Wright. One of the smartest men alive, go look him up, former Bishop of Durham, brilliant. And he says this, Paul doesn't see these hymns and songs as simply decorative, a pleasant oral embroidery, only the British, only the British, around the Christian faith and practice. Singing, whether aloud or in your heart, was, he thought, an excellent way of actually practicing your faith. The, they, these hymn songs, are not merely entertainment, they are instruction. 
consultation, sorry, consolation, warning, and hope. The singing that Paul has in mind is the ultimate antidote to living in the darkness of the immorality that pervades the surrounding world. This is what singing together does for us. It renews our perspective about who we are, what we're meant to do in this life, and it helps us to keep going. God has a plan for us. And so as we wrap up today, I think, the, I think it's clear as to what we should do and why this matters to us. You have not been left to your own devices to live in this world. And thank God for it. Our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he set out a plan for our flourishing. All we have to do is practice it. We have to practice God's plan. That's it. That's what we have to do today. We have to take the plan that he gave us for flourishing in the world and simply execute on it. And so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put it back up here. I want you to take a look at that. And ask yourself and ask the Lord, what is the immediate most important thing I can do right now in these steps? Have I forgotten who I am and who, what I'm meant to do? Go to growth track. Have you forgotten your purpose? Go to growth track. Are you making decisions in isolation? It's time to be vulnerable with some trusted members of the people of God. It's time to be vulnerable with trusted members of your church. Are you not working on any particular aspect of your faith? Pick one and start at it. Pick something and just start. Do you need to be encouraged and renewed? Sing with and over Jesus' people and watch how it changes your life. God has set out a plan for us. All we have to do is execute on it. And that's the beauty of this. It's also the hard part of this. It's very clear. It just takes work. Which again, in our prevailing cultural narrative, is the last thing it wants you to do. It does, look, our culture does not want you to work at your faith. It, it doesn't. It wants you to be satisfied with just being in the kingdom of light and doing nothing. But there's so much more for you. There's so much more for this world. And so here's what I want to do. I just simply want to encourage you. Like, I want to encourage you in this. Look, look at me. You are God's best option to display to an onlooking, passively nihilistic world what a life of purpose and meaning looks like. You're his best option. He has given you everything you need. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you, counseling you, working through you to affect the onlooking world. You have everything you need. You can do this. You've been given a group of people who are striving towards the same goal you are. We can do this. We can live a life of purpose and meaning instead of apathy and nihilism. We can do this. All we have to do 
is decide to take the next step in practicing. That's it. So I want to invite you now. Let's pray together and consider for a moment exactly what God has for you in his plan of flourishing and where you should start. Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you that you did not leave us alone in this world. Like I consider so often every other faith and that they require you do so much before you belong and then you don't even really know if you're on the right track. Instead, you rescued us, made us your child and said, now let's figure out how to get good at it. Thank you for loving us that much. So Father, we pray right now that you continue to encourage us, you continue to enliven us, to shake off the shackles of the day and continue to walk the path of following after you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.